Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord, a podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. Hi, welcome to the Beyond Speaking podcast. My name is Brian Lord. Today we have Anthony Munoz. Over 13 years in the NFL, Anthony played in two Super Bowls for the Bengals, uh, was selected to the Pro Bowl for 11 consecutive years, and was a member of the 80s All-Decade Team and the 75th Anniversary All-NFL Team. And of course, he was inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. So, Anthony, thank you so much for coming on and joining us here on the Beyond Speaking Podcast. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to sitting down and just chatting a little bit. So thank you. Now, you are you are really a well-rounded guy. You know, everybody thinks of you as a football guy, but you won a national championship at USC as a baseball player. You know, that's right. It was uh Actually, the same year we won a football national championship, 1978, and then 1978 baseball. And a lot of people see me as the football player, but uh, when I share my story, baseball is my first love. Growing up in Southern California, I have two older brothers at the age of six, seven. I had a dream to be a major league baseball player, and I noticed that, that I was given you know, some pretty good physical abilities in baseball, so I started competing with them. And I was set on uh, – I was a third baseman pitcher. My dream was to have – a glove with my name on it, like my hero, Brooks Robinson, to have my name on a bat. Uh, So I was on my way, man, you know, little league baseball, high school baseball. And when I was being recruited, even though I was being recruited for football, of course, I knew USC had a track record of letting their guys play baseball. So everybody else kind of followed up all the other schools. Hey, you can play baseball if you come to school here and play football. And I was always a big USC fan. So that was one of the agreements we had is you attend school here at USC, you play football, and we'll let you play baseball. But, uh, you know, the career was cut short uh, in baseball. I played one year, and it wasn't uh, bad. One year playing and one uh, national championship ring. So I got <laughs> – Got to experience that, and uh, I would have loved to play more baseball at USC. An amazing coach there. In fact, the year we won the the World Series, it was his 11th national championship as the coach here at USC. And uh, so I learned a lot. So I got to, yeah, I played with some great players and got to go Omaha, Nebraska, to the old Rosenblatt Stadium and win a, a college World Series. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I love those those stories. Uh, which was more fun, the the for football or, or baseball? Well, you know, I think the the celebration, probably baseball, because we won the last game and we got to charge the field. And right there we hoisted the, you know, the national championship trophy with all my teammates. And they did the, you know, the presentation in front of the full stadium where football, we we won and then we won the Rose Bowl and then we had to wait. And then you, you know, you were notified that you're the national champion. So then, you know, we got our ring and stuff, but it wasn't like the spontaneous. We won the Rose Bowl. We're national championship. We had to wait for the vote. So, you know, it was a little more celebratory uh, as a baseball player, but uh, both, both of them very meaningful. Yeah. How does it feel for you? You know, having experienced so many championship opportunities, you played in two Super Bowls. How does it feel to have the Bengals back in the Super Bowl? I tell you what, Brian, this city is in a buzz and, you know, (laughs) I do the preseason games on TV. I've done them for like 22 years. And when I go to camp preparing for the the preseason, I usually get a chance to talk to the team. And one of the things that I share with them right away is there's probably 40 guys conservatively that still live in Cincinnati that I played with. I tell the guys that are on the present day team, and I told them this year, I said, you have a lot of former players that are in Cincinnati that are your biggest fans. We want you to be successful. We experience playoff, playoff victories, AFC championships. 
Super Bowls. We want you to experience that. So now they're getting to experience uh, not only three playoff wins, but going to the Super Bowl. And the city, I tell people, the reason we stayed here is because of the people. And it's a amazing sports town. And for me, it's fun to see the organization, the coaches, and the players' experiences. But I love it for the fans because they are just like faithful fans. They've, they've been sticking with this team for a lot of lean years. And to have the team going to the Super Bowl, uh, it's even more fun to be part of this community and go out. You know, our big chain is Who Day. I've yeah. heard a lot of that over the, the years I've been here. But the last three weeks, I don't think I've heard as many Who Days in the community, <laughs> the grocery store, out eating at a restaurant, or just that, driving down the street. When they see it's me, they're like waving and beating their horn and Who Day. So I'm really happy for this community. It, it's a lot of fun. We'll get to some of the questions later, but I did get some questions on social media. I said, what questions do you have? And, and this woman, uh, Cordy, uh, Cordy Radebush, just her question was who day? So that was her, <laughs> that was her one thing. Awesome. Uh, so now you've obviously gotten to know some of the players. You watch every game. Um, I, I'm curious, does Joe Burrow remind you more of Joe Montana or Boomer Esiason? Well, I think a little of both of them. I mean, you know, I think the way they carry themselves, you know, Boomer was a very confident guy. I wasn't around Montana in the huddle, but I, I see that he was very confident. So as far as Boomer, Boomer believed that he could lead the team, believed that he could bring us back. And that's what I see in Joe Burrow, man. I'll tell you what, the kid is cool. He's poised. Nothing rattles him. And that's what's been so impressive about watching him. Uh, you know, he might throw a pick. The fun thing is, as the season went on, when something happened like that, you knew the next time he came out in the huddle, they were gonna they were gonna drive and score, and a lot of good things were gonna happen. And you know, Boomer was the same way. I can see that these guys today love Joe Burrow. They love playing for him, and he's their leader. And that's how, exactly how we felt about Boomer. As soon as he took over our offense as a young guy, we saw that he was our leader, and we knew he was our leader. We would, uh, we would run through a wall for him. And even now as an old guy, if I could muster up the strength, I might try to run through a wall for him. I love him that much. And I see that with the team now with Joe Burrow. How does this team, like, you know, you're just saying some of those things. How, how else would this team compare to your 80s Super Bowl teams? Well, you know, I, I mentioned the confidence. I think these guys have not only confidence in themselves, but in each other. And they really enjoy playing with each other. And that was the thing with our team. We enjoyed each other as a group. We played loose, and that's what I see these guys. And, you know, the fun thing for these guys, they're in the moment right now. We were in the moment, and we're, like, retired for years, and we still have a lot of guys that live here, and we're still very, very close. And that's what these guys are building now. They're building those relationships that won't only last while you're playing, but after you retire, man, you might not see a guy for 10 years, and then you see him. It's like you you missed him for a day or two. That's the type of – bond you get with these guys going through what you go through uh so that's the fun thing and that's what i see with these guys and that's the the great thing about back when you know i always say back in the day when i played and the, the relationships i established and still have and i see these guys building the same relationships now you know whenever you look at the all-time list of all-time great players you know you're considered one of if not the best offensive lineman ever and one of the best football players ever what do you feel it takes to become the best at what you do well i think it takes a first of all love for what you do i mean i know when i was i loved every aspect of it you know you hear guys that talk about why well, i really don't like practicing just give me the game i love the off-season training for me that was a big part your off-season training getting stronger getting in better shape working on your fundamentals your technique studying as much film as possible. So the preparation, I think, is huge. 
and then really paying attention to the, the minor details. I mean, a lot of times you just want to, you know, beat the guy across from you, but it's how you do it with great technique that allows you to play for a lot of years. Uh, so those are the things that I was taught growing up, work ethic, responsibility, uh, you know, really paying attention to details. Uh, so I'm thankful that that was instilled in me. And I really felt that uh, as I went through my career, that allowed me to, to really perform at the highest level and to have all these great things that are said about me now that I still, I still pinch myself when I hear those things. Cause I mean, here's a guy from Ontario, California, growing up in a single parent home. We never had a car. We had to, you know, walk to the grocery store and all of a sudden, you know, people use those words like, you know, the best ever, or one of the best. And it just, it's still very humbling. And I, I kind of pinch myself when I hear that. <laughs> well, one of the things you already mentioned with Boomer and being a great leader, you know, who were some of the best leaders that you were ever around? Well, you know, I, I speak a lot about leadership. I talk about the leadership qualities, uh, characteristics, and, you know, I, I talk about how leaders, they hold you accountable, but they also encourage you. And I, I go right to three that I would, you know, when I first got here, two of them, when I first got to Cincinnati, one has to be Paul Brown. I mean, Think about it. The Cleveland Browns had his name. He left them. He started the, the Cincinnati Bengals found, uh, uh, organization in 68. You think about, for, I tell people, if you're a football fan, you have to study history mm -hmm. uh, and you have to study Paul Brown. I mean, you talk about the face mask. You talk about playbooks. You talk about videotaping practices to study. You, and then one of the things, and that was Paul Brown. He brought all those things. And here's another thing. You talk about an innovator. I think it was the late 50s. Think about how the quarterback communicates with the coaches through a transmitter. And, you know, Paul Brown had to tell people all he had to do was kind of be around, say a few words. He held you accountable. But when you perform in Super Bowl year, here's Paul Brown. He was doing the icky shuffle, you know, so it's like he encouraged <laughs> you. And then the second guy, you know, you, t you think about the, the great Green Bay Packers teams, Vince Lombardi, Bart Starr, Paul Horning, Jim Taylor, you know, Fuzzy Thurston, Willie Davis, Ray Nitschke. And Vince Lombardi in his last book said the finest player I ever coached was my head coach my first four years, Forrest Gray, a Hall of Fame tackle. He came in here. He was a disciplinarian, but he had a plan. We bought into his plan. We bought into what he wanted to do the second year here after this team struggling two years before he got here. We improved my rookie year, his first year. We were 12 and four, went to the Super Bowl and Forrest was the same way. He held you accountable, 6'5", 240 from Texas, had that Southern draw. You knew if he wanted you to do grass drills, up-downs, you'd do them because Vince Lombardi had him doing them. Uh, you know, so he, he had the plan and he held you accountable. But when you were successful, man, he put his big old paw around you and he would tell you, great job. Those two. And then one of my teammates for nine years was a great leader, and that's Boomer Esiason. Uh, he came in as a young guy. We talked about him. He took control. He knew how to connect, and that's another thing. Leaders connect with their players, with their team. Boomer connected with us right away, and he knows how to connect with guys. You know, we had gift exchanges and stuff, and every Thursday night he knew if he took us to dinner, that was a good way to connect with his offensive line, to feed us food, you know. <laughs> but, uh, and, you know, and you talk about accountability. You don't have to say things to hold guys accountable. We knew that Boomer was so smart, knew the game plan so well, that held us accountable, and we better be on the same page. So we needed to study. We needed to be prepared. So Sunday afternoon, we were all on the same page. Those are – I've been around others, but those are three guys, Paul Brown, Forrest Gregg, and, and Boomer Esiason, leaders in my mind that really taught me a lot about how to lead. 
That's great. That's great. And it, it is, I mean, definitely, you know, obviously it's football. It takes a team and it takes those leaders and, and it's great that you had that. Um, you know, what with you, I mean, you've had so many times where you've had to overcome obstacles, you know, with surgeries, with not even sure you make the NFL um, to, you know, all the things that offensive linemen have to deal with. Like it's, it is, I mean, just, just think of what happens in one play that would break most of us. And you've done thousands and thousands, you know, uh, for you, um, what are some of the obstacles you overcame and how did, how did you overcome them? Yeah, I guess, I guess the, the primary, the biggest one was probably my senior in college. I go to USC back in the seventies, coming out of high school, high school, all American USC was winning national championship, Rose bowls, pumping out all Americans, Heisman trophy winners. And I wanted to be part of that. So I went there with all these big plans. Uh, little did I know that I'd have three knee operations in four years and not experience, you know, playing against Notre Dame or UCLA or playing in Rose bowls. And, my last year, I'd had two previous to my prior to my senior year. Uh, and at least the first two surgeries, I went through half the season. So I played half the years. My senior year, I got hurt in the very first game. The second time we had the football, I missed the entire season. Now it was a matter of, okay, what am I going to do now? I was getting ready to finish school. So I had that in my back pocket, but I still had the passion and the desire to, to, to rehab and maybe give it one more shot. We were coming off a national championship my junior year. We were ranked number one my senior year when I got hurt. So now it was like, all right, my third year, let's get ready. Let's let's get physically ready to play maybe in one Rose Bowl. And so that was the toughest part. I'd been married for close to two years. You know, I was going to school. I was going to rehab in the training room. I'd get home. I'd do some homework. And I got to admit, 6'6", 300 pounds, I would shed a few tears on my wife's shoulder because wasn't real certain what was going to happen. But the one thing I said is the work ethic I learned at home growing up, my mom working two, three jobs, providing for five kids, the responsibility she taught us of if you want to play baseball, football during the school year, get your homework done. If you want to play during the summer, you do the chores at home. And it wasn't just dusting. The, we had to wash clothes, wash dishes, you know, fix food for our younger siblings. I mean, iron clothes. So she taught us a lot of valuable lessons. And then, you know, so how was I going to put that into work my senior year? And I just busted it. And I was going to make sure that I wasn't going to make it to the next level. I wasn't going to get a chance in the NFL with three knee operations because I wasn't physically ready. And it was a lot of tough hours in the training room and studying. And I had a chance to earn my job back after that mountain I had to climb during the school year of school, rehab, weight training, conditioning. And I got to play the entire Rose Bowl game, one game my senior year, the only Rose Bowl I played with all the guys I, I went into school with. And uh, of course, you know, you talked about the NFL career, the rest is history. Uh, so I look back and think, man, it was worth just the blood, <laughs> sweat and tears and busting it and not really knowing if what was going to happen after that Rose Bowl game, because, you know, there was experts, pundits that said, ah, way to finish a nice college career. It's time to move on and do something else. You won't get a chance in the NFL. And I'm just praying. I said, Lord, it just takes one team, one team to give me a shot. And it just happened to be the team with the third pick in the first round that took a chance on me and uh, gave me a chance to compete. And I ended up uh, going to 13 camps, uh, not just the one that I wanted to, but 13. And that's amazing, too, because I know I think I was looking it up. Maybe you only missed like three or four games over, you know, over a decade. What what do you think changed or how was it your preparation that changed or what allowed you to do that? Well, I'm sure a lot of that had to do with preparation. Uh, you know, going into my senior, I was probably in the best shape that I've been in. But prior to that, I mean, I was in okay shape. 
And just, you know, the injuries in college were just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, you know, a guard and a lineman falling on it when I'm cutting a guy off and pulling and jumping over a pile. So, you know, you just kind of learn how to flow with when you're hitting stuff. But, uh, you know, a lot of it's just preparation. And I tell these young guys, the better shape you're in, going, the harder you can play and you play from the snap to the whistle and you don't have to worry about guys falling on you because you're – you're making defensive linemen mad because you're going to the whistle and guys don't like that. And I think that was the key. I got to a point where I worked on my conditioning so hard that I could go every play a hundred percent. And uh, when guys were falling and stuff, I'd be, you know, still blocking. And that really helped when you, you have your body moving all the time, the injury factor, I think the risk goes down way really, really low. And I think that uh, I'd have to credit that uh, to my being, like you said, 12 years, missed three games, and then missed a couple out of my 13th. But uh, that gave me longevity and durability. That, one of the things you said was interesting to me about um, uh, about making other people mad. Do you think to be a great competitor, is it more to focus on doing what you want to do or doing what they don't want you to do? Well, I my focus was always on being the best, being physical, being tenacious, and like I said, go to the end of the play. And then you realize they are going to be mad. They're, they're not. And I tell the guys now, you're not playing a football game as a lineman to make friends. Mm -hmm. If you want to play in a golf tournament with these guys or raise funds for charity, then you do it with these guys. But <laughs> from the kickoff to the last second, those guys should be ticked off at you. They really should. So you're, And that's the way I looked at it. I mean, it was one of those things. There are certain guys I played with in college, tried to shake my hand before a game. And I just kind of say, you know, we'll talk after the game because I knew I had to protect my quarterback. I had to open holes for my running back. So, yeah, you're going to make guys mad if you're really getting after it and trying to do what you have to do. Because when I got in the NFL, I wanted to keep my job at least 10 years. That was my personal goal. I wanted, So in order to do that, you better make the guys mad. You better be the best or else, you know, you're going to be buddies with them and you're going to be hanging out the, at the local uh, gym trying to work out and find another job. Now, you were obviously, you were talking about these other leaders. You were a leader as well. I mean, you can't be one of the best ever and not have people look up to you. Um, what would you do if you saw some teammates of yours? I know a lot of times, you know, we're talking to corporate audience for a lot of these things. You have managers or people that don't see their people working as hard as they should. Uh, when you were in your situation, maybe you saw some teammates that weren't pushing or, or living up to their potential. How would you approach them? What would you do? Well, most of the times I would not have to verbalize. And my thing was always leading by example. I, I, these guys saw that I ran more than the coaches gave us to run. I lifted more. I studied more. After a practice, there was four of us. They would all go in and shower, and we'd do like a couple miles just to get in better shape. So by example, if they were not working as hard in practice and we're just busting it, but you would say things. I mean, I felt comfortable saying to guys, you know, I mean, you just can't, you know, go three-quarter speed. You know, you're going to get hurt or you're not going to get better. You know, the thing I loved about practice is you had so many more reps during practice than you do in a game. And that was your way to get better. And uh, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't hesitate to say something to the guys if I saw that they weren't given, especially if you saw that they were very talented. So, um, you know, one of the things you talk about, uh, obviously, as a leader. Um, but how you can influence and impact people sometimes in a negative way and in a positive way. Can you describe those two different things? Yeah, that's one thing that I've learned over the years and I share is that you're going to be, you're going to influence people either way. And you, you got a great point there, Brian, either positively or negatively. You know, if, if I was the slack and just, you know, got to practice 
you know, right when we had to be there, let's say nine o'clock practice started, I got there five to nine. And as soon as it was over, I showered and I was gone. I think that's a negative way saying, okay, well, he comes and leaves. I mean, he's one of the last ones here and the first one's gone. Instead of, you know, getting there and making a productive maybe hour before we have to be there, studying film, doing some weight training, just doing something that's going to make you better. Uh, and, you know, in it, a lot of times, and the thing that I talked about, the verbal and really showing, guys sometimes have a tendency to talk a little too much, and then when they're out, they're not showing you the whole saying, talk the talk and walk the walk. I think you have to be able to do that. And one of the things is I want to influence people in a positive way by work ethic and the way I, you know, respect people and treat people. And I think that's how you become a positive influence instead of, you know, I I can tell a lot about people, how they treat their parents, or if you're at a restaurant, how they treat servers. And I tell you what, they're busting their tail and they're trying to make a, a dollar. So you want to treat them. You know, a lot of times you get people that will treat people that can't help you out. Not very good. You know, and I've been taught if someone can help you out, you still treat them as good or even better someone that can help you out. And I think that's how we have a, a positive influence is how we treat people, regardless to what their job is and what they're doing. So we do have a couple questions here for you. Um, this one's from Tim Richards. Uh, who was the pr- toughest person you ever had to block in the NFL? Well, playing left tackle, I could give Tim probably a list of a dozen. But uh, <laughs> the one guy that I usually talk about was a total package uh, size, strength, speed, quickness, smarts. Uh, and he only played 19 years. So I guess he played and he's a pro football hall of famer. That was another number 78 Bruce Smith for the Buffalo bills. I mean, the guy was amazing. You could see, I was probably in my fifth year when he got in the league and you could see that he was just loaded with talent. And, uh, the guy was got into excellent shape. And, uh, I knew every time I played on Sunday, you do, but when you played against Bruce Smith, man, not only your A game, but it was like your A++ game that you had to have uh, to play. But Bruce Smith, I would say, was the best. What do you do? You study differently. Do you prepare differently for those types of people uh, than you do a normal Sunday? Or, or was there anything that was different? No, I look at it. Whoever my opponent was, I looked at everything he did. And see, I had kind of a repertoire of, of technique that I used, And I, I have to kind of uh, match it with the person I was playing. So, you know, I would look at Bruce and he did this well, did this. I mean, so I would try to, okay, this is what's going to fit best for him. And the next guy, I'd look at his talent and say, this is the technique that's going to fit best for him. So I match all the technique I had with the personnel I was playing, just knowing that he might have a spin move, Bruce Smith, and the next guy have a spin move, but it's not going to be a Bruce Smith spin move. (laughs) (laughs) So this one, this is just a funny one. I was asking for questions here internally too. And so Sean Hanks, our CEO, I said, what's your question for me? He goes, he's got the biggest hands of any human being on earth. And I said, that's not a question. He goes, well, I guess you guys met at a, like a Colts game or something one time with Frank Reich. And he goes, and Sean's six, five. And he goes, this guy is just this massive human being. So obviously you got those gifts and and everything else. It's like, you got to be able to stop those guys. And sometimes at the end of your career, they don't go the way they, but please tell Sean, Sean I said hello. And yeah, I mean, it's one of those things you shake hands and especially now the fingers aren't, don't feel as great as they did when I was playing. And you have guys that see my hands and they want to give you the old, you know, kind of squeeze test. Yeah. Wait, wait, make sure you get in. Don't squeeze my fingers because I don't feel very good right now. (laughs) You you know, when you're dealing with having to stop those big linemen, uh, I'm glad I have the big mitts. Yep, absolutely. So last question here. This is from Lauren Baskin. Who are you picking to win the Super Bowl? 
Well, let's see. I played 13 <laughs> years for the Bengals. The Bengals are in the Super Bowl. I, I think I'm going to go with the Cincinnati Bengals. And not only because that's my team, but I really believe as I look at the talent, I think they have a legitimate shot to win this football game. It's going to be tough. Even to, with the Rams playing their home stadium, I think they have a, a legitimate shot. So I'm, I'm going with the, the who day. All right. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for joining us here on the Beyond Speaking podcast. We really appreciate it. And good luck to you and your team at the Super Bowl. Thank you, Brian. Enjoyed it. Great time. Thanks for everything. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. To learn more about today's guest, go to beyondspeak.com. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen.